Welcome back, everybody, to episode 11 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I've been out for a couple of weeks, but back on it, and I got a new guest uh, at Will Sports. He's here, 18 years old, making this content. He just hit 5K on his uh, sports platform on IG. His full name is William Newburn, and he's been doing this page for a minute. Uh, why don't you, you know, William, talk about yourself, talk about your product, and I just saw you just got 5K today. Big accomplishment for you. How has that process been? getting in this moment right here and to the day you started uh I just think uh it's just about staying consistent and that's been like the thing for me um like when I first started I just wanted to have people to talk sports with and uh you know obviously as I've grown I've had more people to talk sports with and uh I try to you know upgrade my content quality on my page and all that and I think I've done a good job I think that's why uh you know my page has been able to grow over time and you know, I just think those are the two things that uh, are the most important, you know, the consistency and the content quality. And I have both. So, um, yeah, I'm very thankful for 5,000 followers. And, you know, just, we just want to keep going. And so you said starting this page, you just wanted somebody to talk sports with. And now you've basically blown up into like a social media sports hub. And so you're still in high school, college is down the horizon. Uh, yep. Do you see yourself wanting to pursue sports journalism or is this something you kind of just creating as an independent platform and you want to grow your own independent thing as the years progress? Uh, that was definitely some that's definitely something I've like considered, uh, like as a major in college and all that and like getting into because like I just remember growing up and seeing shows like First Take and stuff like that and being like, I want to I want to do that. Um, but you know, the more I, the more I grow, yeah, I would, I think if I keep growing at this rate and, you know, things keep going well, I would like to possibly pursue just making this like my own brand, like a Bleacher Report or something and, you know, something like that. Always got to dream big in that aspect and you're, right. you're off to a great start and can't wait right. to see how much your page can grow in Boston. Thank you. And adding it to you know, topics for my podcast. We're going to touch base on the first one that I've had on the docket. You just actually posted on your content. You know, the Lamar Jackson dilemma, throughout free agency, Baltimore, the Ravens offense hasn't really been able to accumulate new receiving weapons on the outside. You have a lot of individuals that look at it as an opportunity that could provide Lamar the aspects and ability to grow as a passer. They just accumulated Sammy Watkins through free agency, a one-year $6 million deal. And the fall, the past year, they were ranked dead last in passing yards. Mm -hmm. And the top two receiving targets were Marquise Brown and, uh, and Andrews. And those guys were able to accumulate 700 yards plus receiving. And outside of that, they haven't really had a 1,000-yard receiver this season. Well, the season that just happened. And yeah. it looks as if with Sammy being added to the roster, the receiving core probably isn't going to be as strong or any different from what it was last year. And so do you look at the situation being – in retrospect, a reaction to Lamar's inability to improve as a passer or just bad luck in terms of Baltimore trying to reach out to these individuals. They reached out to Juju, Kenny Holiday, and I think T.Y. Hilton as well. Um, the T.Y. Hilton and Schuster actually got bigger deals than the original deals that they got from their prior teams. Yeah. Or you just think it's just bad business in terms of they tried and it just didn't work out? I think a lot of it has to do like with scheme because like the Ravens, uh, I feel like they're looking for receivers who will help uh, like as blockers or whatever, like in the run game, because, you know, they like to run the football and in Baltimore. 
I just think that could be like a little bit of a turnoff for a lot of receivers because a lot of these receivers want to be, you know, featured and they want to get a lot of catches and they want their numbers to look good. And they don't want to go to a situation where that's not going to be the case. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's been the issue. I think Lamar can throw the ball, obviously. Like, you know, I think he's a good passer. He's not a great passer, but he's shown he could be a really good passer. I just think it's about the Ravens opening up the playbook a little more and kind of allowing him to really show everything he can do. Cause I just feel like they're, they're too run heavy and they won't. And I think, I think that's a bad thing for him long-term because I think that could break down his body. And I just think you need to really grow as a team. If you want to become that, take that next step as a team, at least in the playoffs, you're going to have to become more of a pass first type of team or at least feature the passing game a little more. You can't be dead last in passing and expect to go far in the playoffs with how the NFL is nowadays. Um, Sammy Watkins is a nice addition, but I don't think he's going to make them any much better. Like, you know, would you say like he's the number one? Would you say Marquise Brown would be the number one receiver for them or Andrews? I mean, I don't think I don't I don't think adding him will make them that much better. Yeah, you know, you touched, you know, based on a lot of points. And I think the first thing you elaborate on is the scheme. And you're right. And Baltimore is an odd team in terms of they had more rushing attempts than passing attempts by yeah. not by a lot, but by over 150. And so that does play a lot. And when you look at Brown and Andrews, they led the team in receiving and receptions with 58. And when you have a guy like a Juju Smith-Schuster, who I honestly thought two weeks, like a month prior to free agency even happening, I said Juju Smith-Schuster would be a perfect fit in Baltimore. He's a great blocker. Um, most of his routes are intermediate type concepts, which is basically what Lamar throws pretty well. But I also mm-hmm. looked at Juju, probably looked at the market as this. Look, everybody's offering me one-year deals. And with the salary cap taking a dip because of the pandemic this offseason, I can cash out even more next year when the salary cap goes back to basically its normal rate. And so yeah. the only way I can do that is I have to have a great one-year deals type season. And right. if you go to Baltimore, you're going to get 50-plus catches. And I honestly looked at him. I looked at him bypassing them as basically saying, you know what, I'll take my losses on that one because I'll stay in a system where I'm familiar. I'll get 60 to 65 catches, maybe eclipse a thousand yards, which isn't a guarantee in Baltimore system. And that allowed me to re-hit the market again and cash out. Um, I agree with everything you just said, yeah. And so I think that's a reality. But I also think the other aspect is, and it's the tough truth, I don't think Lamar Jackson – you're right. He can't throw the football. No one's out here saying he can't to be yeah. an NFL quarterback at this level. Well, to be a quarterback in the NFL at the professional level to win MVP, you got to be able to throw the football at least above average. And he can, but he's not very great at throwing the football outside the numbers. And that's where a lot of the, his receivers, such as Brown, Sneed, when he was there, I just saw he signed a one year deal with the Vegas Raiders. They haven't been able to maximize their fullest potential. So when I do hear individuals saying he doesn't have the weapons, you're right. I think Brown, his his ceiling in the NFL is at number two. But I don't think he's really showcased his full potential within that offense because what he does very well, which is attack vertically on the boundary down the field. Lamar hasn't been consistently able to hit him on those type route concepts consistently. And so the only guy in their offense in the passing game that's been able to maximize his potential has been Mark Andrews. He's over the middle. Lamar's great in intermediate routes. He's been Lamar's favorite target, his safety haven, and he's been able to live it up in a system where last year they were dead last, but the year prior when Lamar won MVP, they were 27th in passing, 
and Andrews played a huge part in him being successful during that MVP season. So I think it goes hand in hand, but I think in order for the Ravens to feel obligated to open up the playbook, they got to believe that their quarterback is taking the next step as a passer. And we saw this past season with Josh Allen, it can happen. You can take a substantial leap as a passer at the professional level and turn that corner. And so I think that's really what the whole league is waiting on for Lamar to do. He's got the innate ability to be one of the most athletic players in the game. That's led him to get an MVP. And so the next step we're looking for is how can he progress as a passer outside the numbers? Right. And, you know, I, I really want to see uh, a top notch like receiver go there because I just think that would have been really interesting to see. But, like, yeah, I agree with your points. Like, Lamar definitely has to take that next step. And, like you say, he's talented enough to do it. And it'll be interesting because he all he hears is that you can't throw the football or you're a running back at, at the quarterback position. So, you know, I just hope that coming next year, there's just a little bit of a difference in his offense. You could still feature the running game because Lamar is so good at that. But I just really do hope that this team – kind of relies on the passing game a little more um, and trust Lamar a little more and see where that gets them. I agree because I think moving forward, especially in this day and age in the NFL, you can't really get by running the ball a hundred more times more than you throw, especially in a position yeah. where quarterbacks ability to do damage through the air is ever so important. And in the playoffs, they benefited playing against a Tennessee Titan team who defensively, was probably the worst defense in the postseason out of everybody that played in the playoffs. And so they just didn't have the personnel to keep Lamar in the pocket and prevent him from doing what he normally does throughout the regular season. But then when they played Buffalo, an average defense, but had the scheme and the personnel to keep Lamar in the pocket, blitz a lot with DBs out of the secondary, play a lot of man concepts and basically funnel everything towards the middle of the field and dare him to throw outside. He struggled and that's why they lost. And so that's going to be the cat and mouse game with Lamar's career moving forward. I think when he plays opponents in the postseason where schematically they just, well, from a personnel perspective, they just dominate them because of his athleticism and their speedness on the outside, they can win. But when they play a team that schematically can align certain elements and put themselves in a position to kind of limit his ability to be productive, they're vulnerable and in essence, they lose. And so that's, that's, that's really it for Lamar. He's going to get his max contract. He's going to get paid. But moving forward, if he wants to live up to all the expectations that he gave himself heading into the league, winning a championship, being considered an all-time great, you got to take that next step as a passer. And I can't wait to see if he does. Completely agree, yeah. So as we segue from Lamar and the Ravens, we can also go into the free agency period in the NFL. It's still going as we speak, as we hit towards the draft. And want to comment on, in your opinion, who is the prime winners and losers during that process? We saw teams like the Patriots go all in day one and day two, and they look like they're going to have a completely different roster heading into the new season. And you saw teams like the aforementioned Ravens that we talked about basically spend all of their capital keeping their defensive line depth in-house. So let's start with the winners. Who do you think won in free agency in terms of not just being able to cash out in free agency, but in essence getting high quality players at pristine deals or moderately on the cheap. Okay. So there's three teams I would look at, say uh, Cleveland, Washington, and uh, Tampa and Tampa with them. They just managed to get everyone back, which really surprised me. I don't know how they have all this cap to be able to get everyone back, 
Then the Browns, you add two really good guys in your secondary, and that was one of the weaknesses of that team last year. Um, you're going to get OBJ back. So this, this Browns team right now, in my opinion, would be the favorites in the AFC North with the additions they made this summer. I mean, this free agency period, my bad. Um, and then you have the Washington football team who had uh, uh, William Johnson. I mean, William Jackson, my bad, and Curtis Samuel. And their receiving core is going to improve a lot with Curtis Samuel there. Uh, also, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who I know is a little up and down, but he's still an improvement over what they had last year. And uh, then you add Jackson to a defense that was really stout last year, one of the tops in the, in the league. And this is a team that, you know, went toe-to-toe with Tampa in their playoff game last year and managed to win the NFC East last year, uh, even though it was down. And it's obviously improved a little this year, but there's no reason Washington can't win that division again this year and be even better. So those three teams really stand out to me. Obviously, you have like teams like the Giants who got Kenny Galladay and Kyle Rudolph and, and Adore Jackson, but those three teams really stand out to me the most. And I want to touch base on those three teams that you feel like one for starters, Tampa. I'm a Saints fan, so I've had the weird opportunity to see our divisional rival win the Super Bowl. Yes. Um, I haven't really taken it that personal. Uh, I don't really uh, hate the Bucks like that as a Saints fan, but I do agree. Like I, I did coming into free agency feel like for Tampa Bay, it was instrumental that they brought back Levante David over everybody else. He, in my opinion, not just his performance in the Super Bowl. I feel like that was the icing on the cake in terms of his value to the team defensively. But he allows Devin White to play off the ball. And if he didn't come back as a team's prime middle linebacker, that meant Devin White more than likely would have had to move to that position. I don't know from an instinctual perspective in terms of calling the plays in the huddle, getting everybody aligned. I don't know if he was going to be able to do that productively while still maintain his uh, ability to just play off of athleticism, raw ability, and instinct. I, I didn't know if he could handle the responsibility of being instinctual and micromanage the defense. So they kept David on the cheap. And then I, I make a case, Barrett maybe took a pay cut because when really? you look and saw the Cincinnati Bengals were able to get Trey Henderson, who I think got $80 million for four years, Barrett could have got a bigger offer somewhere else. I, even with the fact that the cat was kind of took a little bit of a dip because of the pandemic, but he decided to stay at a discount. And I think a lot of that had to do with Brady's greatness and the team being substantially successful in the playoffs. He's looking at it as probably look this four year extension. Brady may be here for at least two to three years. That means we can continue to be playoff contenders. And then from there, we'll see what happens. And so they were able to maintain those two guys. It shocked me. And it's a great thing for Tampa Bay. And, highlights the fact that you don't have to get other people from other people's teams to be successful in free agency, maintaining your homegrown talent, especially if you're a proficient, talented team like Tampa Bay, you won the Super Bowl is ever so important. They didn't let any of their key cogs run away. And as of right now, they even brought back Leonard Fournette. He played a huge part in the playoff run. They just need AB to bring back, to come back and they're going to basically bring back the same roster they had the year yeah. prior. Cleveland, I agree. Um, John Johnson probably was one of the more underrated safeties in all of football. Didn't get a lot of love and appreciation with the L.A. Rams because we know what a beast Aaron Donald is up the middle and what Jalen Ramsey brings on the outside on the program as a corner. But he played a huge part aligning him with Del Pitt, the rookie safety they got from LSU. If he comes back healthy, we'll pay dividends. Right. And, and Williams as well in the secondary. And Detroit Hill is a great slot corner. Uh, yeah. Denzel Ward was probably their best DB the last two years. And that's about it. 
you know, Greedy Williams is a wait and see type project right now. But Troy Hill is somebody that you can play inside and he can pay dividends. And then last but not least, the Washington football team. I do like what they bring to the table, but I don't think Fitzpatrick is going to put them over the hump like everybody expects them, as everybody expects him to do. I think as of now, personally, in my opinion, I think you have a quarterback battle. I know Fitzpatrick comes into the team one year, $10 million contract, but you do have Heineke for a two-year, $6 million deal. You see in training camp who stands out. We have for preseason, you know, uh, coming into the um, summer. We'll see. You see how those guys perform in such an in-game environment, and then you decide which one you roll with. But the scheme with Fitzpatrick has always been he's great in those early fall weather inclement territories. But then as the weather dips into the winter, plays outside, and the elements do things that human nature can't control, his play does wane. And he plays in the NFC East where outside of Dallas, you're going to be playing outdoors in some very wintry inclement weather conditions in late November, early December. So. That's my thing there. For me personally, I think New England probably stood out the most. And they basically remade the roster and they acknowledged the deficiencies that they had the year prior at tight end. They decided, finally, let's give our quarterback weapons on the outside. And defensively, they added more personnel and acknowledged the fact that maybe they won't trade Stephon Gilmore. They won't let go of Devin McCourty. They added more depth and versatility within the D-line. Uh, Matt Judon, who kind of had a down year with Baltimore, might do wonders as a pass rushing linebacker within Bill Belichick's 3-4 scheme. So they added a new roster. And in a division where the Jets might take some time, I think it might take two or a couple of years before he develops into the quarterback that he is. You competing with Buffalo, in my opinion, in that division. And to show up your defense and provide Cam Newton, who could be your incumbent starter with new weapons on the outside, that team could take the next step as well. I could definitely see that with New England. I, the thing that made me happy about that is that, you know, Cam Newton now, I feel like you could judge him a little more fairly because last year, you know, that team, they they still managed to win seven games. But like you said, they were just kind of uh, iffy at the receiver position. They didn't have a lot of guys that could really uh, create separation and do much. And that, that caused a lot of issues for that team. Uh, and, I mean, the, the Patriots, the only thing with them is I think, since they were signing so many guys early, they signed a lot of guys to deals that I feel like they, they didn't have to give as much money, but um, if they would have waited, but I, I understand them not wanting to wait because they just wanted to make sure that their roster was better. And so they went early and, and got as many guys as they could. So uh, I think that the Patriots doing all this was definitely a reaction to seeing Tom Brady go to the Bucks and win a Super Bowl and, you know, they're a winning franchise and just losing games last year. I definitely played a role in what they did this free agency. So I'm really interested to see how they perform next year. For sure. And to piggyback on what you said about maybe they spurs a little bit excessively on some contract deals with personnel that they didn't probably have to. You have to consider that uh, it is New England and Bill Belichick is a pretty grimy guy to play for. He, he demands a lot. And so Kraft looked at it as for anybody to come up here coming off of the season we had we don't have the allure of brady anymore we could just be like hey take this uh borderline minimum wage deal and come play with us because there's a guarantee you'll be in the super bowl we had to spend some coin i was kind of surprised that that's all hunter henry demanded for on the open market and so i did look at his statistics throughout his career he hasn't eclipsed over a thousand yards receiving as a tight end and a lot of that has to do with the fact that 
he's been injured throughout his career. So it's going to be interesting to see what those two elements, him and Johnny Smith, bring to the table as tight ends. But right. you're right. Newton finally has weaponry. And last year was weird for him. I, I do acknowledge that he's declined, but you also have to take in consideration that he didn't have an offseason. He's coming off a of shoulder surgery, so he was never really truly able to rehab his way fully back into true play. And then his best receiver he was throwing to was Jacoby Myers. That's not going to get it done at the professional level. So now way more enhanced arsenal on the outside that he can throw to from Aguilar, from Kendrick Bourne, the tight ends we just acknowledged. So interesting to see what New England can bring to the table. Now, losers in free agency, who do you got in terms of they spent a lot and you're looking at it like, I don't know, or they didn't do much in state pat and you don't feel like that's going to be good enough moving forward. Who do you think is an NFL franchise lost throughout this free agency process? There's two, there's about three teams that I I would look at. First of all, the Bears, just really bad. I feel like they struck out on everyone. And then you just gave up Kyle Fuller for basically nothing. Uh, and I'm just, I, I don't know what the Bears are doing. I used to be a Bears fan and I, I stopped a while ago because, you know, they just used to let me down every single year. And I see they're still doing that. So the Bears would be probably number one. I look at the Raiders because they just let a lot of their offensive line go. And I don't really feel like they signed a lot of guys that filled the necessary needs on their roster. Like Kenyon Drake's a nice uh, back um, and he can, you know, back up Josh Jacobs and all that. But I just feel like there were so many other needs on his team. Uh, so I guess we'll see what they do in the draft. Maybe some of the guys they let go, they, they plan to replace come draft time. And then the Titans, you just lost so many key players. Um, and I just don't know how they're going to refill, uh, replace a lot of those guys. Um, obviously you still have Tannehill and Henry, but you lost John New Smith, Dory Jackson, a few other guys. So I just feel like those three teams stand out to me the most for sure. I agree. And I'm going to start off with the bears. They're the consummate example of when you whiff in the draft at quarterback, it will set your franchise back half a decade. It set oh, yeah. them back for four years. Um, now, granted, they were able to get to the playoffs with Trubisky as your QB twice during his tenure with the team, which, looking back, was that amazing. Was, that was about the defense, really, if anything. Right, but it, it was more so about the defense, although I do got to give Trubisky his props. That first time they went to the playoffs, he did play well enough for them to win against Philadelphia, and yeah. then, you know, sure. Parky happened. But <laughs> it, it set them back. Like, they should have took Deshaun Watson. Granted, I get it. No one, probably except myself and, and Texas Tech Raider fans, knew that Patrick Mahomes had the probability to be an elite-level quarterback at the NFL right, level. Right. But Deshaun Watson was a no-brainer. I get it. Yes. His stats, he threw a ton of picks. But you got to take, take into consideration that he was the Clemson Tiger offense. So he had to take a ton of chances. Back then when he was on the scene, Clemson's defense wasn't world beaters like it is now. So yeah. they went as far as he went. He took them. And he made some big time plays and the litmus test was his performances against Alabama in the conference, you know, playoff title games, both years, single-handedly gave the Tigers fits and beat him his last year in college. He was the no brainer. They decided not to go with him. They decided to go with his other counterpart in the ACC. They played one year, one year as a starter. And when he was on the roster, he couldn't beat out Marquise Williams, who currently is a practice guard receiver at the NFL level. So it's tough. It set him back for four years. It's got Allen Robinson basically demanding to get paid top dollar or else he doesn't want to be there. He did sign the franchise tag because he kind of doesn't have a choice. Right. And you're right. Their defense has been great 
throughout this tenure of Trubisky being there, and it's been all wasted. And so they decided to go all in to try to get Russell Wilson, but that was a pipe dream because mm-hmm. Seattle was only going to buck if the Jets called. Because in Seattle's eyes, it's like, look, we'll trade him if you give us a top five pick so we can get our new franchise quarterback and start the youth movement there. Chicago's going to be picking in the late 20s if they get Russell Wilson. Why make that transaction? So you're right on the Bears. When it comes to the Raiders, you know, a lot of people didn't like the King and Drake move, but I've realized with Josh Jacobs, he just doesn't stay healthy. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that his running style is very demanding. He runs up the middle all the time. And yes. he plays like he's built like Marshawn Lynch, when in actuality, he may be built like uh, Darren Sproles a little bit, uh, undersized and not that big in the in the chest. And, and we get that. And so I understand getting a guy in Drake, that second unit type back that could come in and spell Jacobs when he's, you know, going through his bruising situations. But outside of that, you're right. They let go of their offensive line, which is which is odd because that was the most affordable entity within that team. The knock on the team for a while has been ever since they got rid of Khalil Mack, they haven't been able to provide a consistent pass rush. Now they don't have a consistent pass protection to protect Derek Carr, who isn't the most mobile guy. But they did bring back Richie Incognito. They did get Nick Martin in the trade with the Texans. Uh, But you also lost Gabe Jackson. So maybe they're looking at it as, you know what, we've been hearing throughout the draft process, this is a very deep tackle draft. Maybe they feel like, you know what, we can get offensive line personnel in the draft. So we'll let go of the guys and take our chances there. But the skinny with the Raiders has been pass rush. Their secondary is very young and has potential, but they haven't looked particularly great because they don't get to the passer with four. And the hope is Yannick Ngakwe can do that. But Yannick Ngakwe last year had a weird season. He joined the Vikings, didn't work out there, got traded to the Ravens, barely did anything there. And he got paid two years and $26 million off of what he brought to the table the year before he last with the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, yes. you know, that's been the skinny with the Raiders and they're a very talented team on both sides of the football, but because they can't rush the passer and because there's not a lot of complexity within their offense, you get Henry Ruggs and he barely got targets last year. So when I see them get a guy like John Brown and everybody's getting excited, I'm like, are they going to go vertical with John Brown? Cause him and Ruggs are basically the same type of receiver and they didn't utilize Ruggs to its fullest potential. And with the Titans, I think they acknowledged last season that obviously it was a failure, but the defense took such a huge step back. They were one of the worst defensive teams in the postseason, like second to last, third to last. And so I think they looked at it as, you know what, Odori Jackson didn't stay healthy last season. And in my personal opinion, I thought Odori Jackson was a bust. Throughout his years with the Titans, he barely got picks. He's a very athletic corner, but he's not the most technically sound and then he was very expendable last season when he couldn't stay healthy because of lower leg injuries. And so they got rid of him. Um, they didn't keep Malcolm Butler, who I thought had a pretty good year for them last year. And they probably looked yeah. at Butler as, you know what? He's getting up there in age. He's expendable. And Kenny Vaccaro, he's on the, he's, a, he's out of there. And so they got Christian Fulton coming in from LSU in his second year. They probably look at the cornerback class coming into the draft as they could get somebody else that could play on the boundary and so they wanted to go full youth movement in the secondary. I don't blame them, considering that their pass defense was not very good. Right. And so for me, I feel like the worst team, one of the worst teams of free agency, might, you know, I'm going to say the Rams. And it's going to sound odd because, you know, they got Stafford and mm-hmm. they kept Leonard Floyd, but 
the issue with the Rams is they basically brought back the same team last year with a new quarterback. And so my issue with Matthew Stafford is he's better than golf, but it's not as by much like everybody's saying he is. You know, with Jerry Goff, the knock on him always was he wasn't the most intellectually sound on the football field. McVay had to tell him everything to do when it came to making plays, going through reads and progressions, making checks at the line. So you get that awareness and experience from Stafford. He can see what the defense gives to the offense at the line of scrimmage, check out of that, check into things. But and he has a stronger arm than Goff vertically down the field. But I don't think he's the I don't think he's the better decision maker than Goff. And he's not as accurate as Goff either. And so you're putting all your resources and hoping that he's going to take you over the top. And while he's had had some pretty good years with the Lions the last few seasons, they haven't translated to wins. And they're bringing back a little Floyd at that huge contract. I get it, but a lot of his production was against Seattle, who's not very good in terms of protecting their quarterback. And so they stayed pat, and they're basically banking on Stafford's going to elevate them to the title. And when you look at teams like Green Bay, it's basically going to stay the same. You're going to have to go through Tampa Bay. You can make a case that New Orleans is going to have better quarterback play with, with Winston there, just yeah. based off of his youth and ability to stretch the ball, stretch the field with his verticalness as a passer. I just don't know if the Rams really got markedly better, like everyone said. And so that's really the big Hopefully, thing. You also do that while losing two of your best secondary players as well. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, I get that. Um, on the Stafford uh, thing, I would say one thing. I do, I feel like when it comes to like he's a guy that I would consider sort of question because like I've just seen so many times with the Lions over the years where he's led them to game winning drives or game tying drives at the end of games. I think that's one thing about him that has always kind of made me higher on him than other than other people. So I I don't know. That's just one thing about me that I think I like about him. I think what's helped Stafford has been public perception in terms of his growth and development as a player has improved these last few years and the Lions have continued to suck. And so what I have in my memory bank is I've seen Stafford early in his career with better teams be the reason why they don't get over the top. And so to expect a diminished version of him and what I mean by diminished is he's been even more beat up than what he was early in his career Sure, his numbers have grown and blossomed into efficiency, but getting a more beat-up version than Stafford, who has shown glimpses of his past self throughout even his prime years, and you're basically selling your franchise to your fan base. He's going to be the reason why we get out of the NFC. I'm not sold because he's 0-3 in the playoffs in each of those three games. He's been the sole reason why they didn't win. Um, they went out of their way to kind of prevent him from being the reason why they lose, but basically saying we're going to play through the running game, things of that nature. And basically what I'm saying is Detroit is – they're not a very proficient franchise when it comes to winning, but in the past decade early on, they were perennial playoff contenders, and right. they got out of the playoffs because of Stafford. And so just saying, you know, Stafford, the last few years, he's the reason why no one takes him serious – Early on in his career, he was the reason why no one took the team serious because he held them back. And so I don't think you become a game-changing quarterback overnight if throughout your career you've been all right but haven't been game-changing enough to propel your team out of ineptitude. Early in his career, he held them back. And then later in his career, his better play hasn't been the reason why Detroit has escalated into winning football. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can do with the L.A. Rams. 
for sure, for sure. And next up, um, the NCAA tournament. Um, you've been a guy on your page. You cover NCAA basketball very in depthly, and so it's been a lot of things that have went on throughout the tournament. Oral Roberts made some incredible noise, you know, beating Ohio State in Florida. Um, the two dominant pillars throughout the um basketball season, Gonzaga and Baylor, they've looked even more dominant in the tournament. So. Which teams have stood out? Which players have stood out for you? And moving forward, as we go deeper into this tournament and the Sweet 16 around the corner this weekend, which teams do we expect to come out on top when it comes to representing NCAA basketball in the Final Four? All right. So teams that would stand out, definitely Oral Roberts. Uh, you went through an Ohio State team who – Ohio State was a team that I was kind of iffy on coming into a tournament because, like, I know they had the talent and they had, the, you know, they've shown that throughout the season, but, like, they don't close games well and they struggle at, like, just making shots and, and decision-making and that show coaching was bad. Like, if you watch that game, Dwayne Washington was really bad down the stretch. They kept going to him when EJ Waddell was playing really well, but, that's a whole nother story. Then they, they, they do it again. And I didn't think they'd be able to beat Florida because a lot of times you see these, you know, teams in the first round manage to win a game because they just play out of their mind or they get a little lucky, but no, or Roberts managed to come out and play the same way against a good Florida team. Um, I did think Florida was a little overseeded, but that's a whole nother story, but they still managed to get it done, which is impressive. And now they play Arkansas who, you know, has been, Okay, but, you know, they could be had, you know. Um, they're about as good as Ohio State. And Oral Roberts is a team that they do a good job of capitalizing on opportunities like making free throws, three-point shots. And I think that's something that has given them an edge uh, in these two games. Um, another team I would mention, uh, definitely Loyola Chicago. They beat uh, Georgia Tech in the first round without Moses Wright, though. So I was kind of like, I, I didn't take much out of that. But then they go and beat Illinois and honestly made it look fairly easy. You know, like Illinois looked very inept on offense the entire game. Loyola was a team that was definitely underseated, though. Um, a lot of people thought they should have been like when like when a, the bracket first came out, I didn't understand why they were seated as an eight. But then you had BYU as a six and, and just a team like that. Even like a Villanova, who obviously has looked good in the tournament so far. But coming into the tournament, they weren't looking good. There was no one that thought Villanova was like a better team than Loyola Chicago coming into the tournament. But you had or a Creighton, but you had teams like that seated higher than Loyola, who's just as good as those teams, in my opinion. And so I do think Illinois got kind of uh, screwed in aspect. But if you're one of the best teams in the country, like we all thought Illinois is, you have to be able to take care of business. You're going to get a tough road no matter what. And Loyola Chicago just made it look very difficult for Illinois. Uh, and, you know, Illinois is my national championship pick, so I was kind of disappointed by that. My entire bracket's basically done at this point. Um, but, you know, those two teams definitely stand out the most. Uh, also, another team I want to bring up, Alabama. I, they looked really good against Maryland, um, who's a really good defensive team, and and when Alabama's making their three-point shots, they're going to run you out the building, and, like, I, I, I'm really – I would love to see them make the final four so we could see them potentially against Gonzaga. Like I would love that. And then uh, the conference that I want to bring up is the PAC 12. Uh, you know, you look at the PAC 12 coming into the postseason, no one really thought anything in the PAC 12. And uh, you know, obviously there weren't many non-conference games this year, but the non-conference game 
Americans, we did have the Big 12 and the Big 10 were the two conferences that seemed to do the best. And I think that's kind of what helped help them have the perception of being the two best conferences. But, you know, obviously as diseases progress, teams get better, teams grow, teams learn more about their style and what players to go to and, and just get smarter. And you've seen that these Pac-12 teams have grown a lot more and they're showing in this tournament. Uh, you have four teams in Sweet 16, teams like Oregon State, who shockingly won a Pac-12 tournament. And not only did they win a Pac-12 tournament, but they've come into the postseason and looked really good. You know, they beat Tennessee, who, you know, Tennessee's a, a weird team. They, they have really bad scoring drops at times. Um, Oklahoma State, though, was a team that was a trendy, you know, Final Four pick uh, in the Midwest region. And obviously, at Kay Cunningham, who's going to be the number one pick in the draft. Isaac Likely, Avery, you know, Anderson. So that, that's a really good squad. And Oregon State managed to take them down. UCLA's look good uh, so far. They did get a little bit of an easier route uh, with the, the Abilene Christian instead of Texas. But, you know, they still had to win that playing game against Michigan State to get in. BYU, who's a solid team. Uh, USC just absolutely obliterated Kansas, which I was so surprised about. I I thought you would see definitely had a chance, but I was not expecting a beatdown like we saw. Um, but obviously, they just they couldn't miss in that game, uh, and they played really solid defense. Like Kansas couldn't score at the rim, and just Kansas just couldn't hit enough perimeter shots. Uh, you look at Oregon, who knocked off um, Iowa. Obviously, their first game against VCU got canceled, um, so that was kind of unfortunate because I had VCU winning that game. That was one of those things in my bracket that kind of. I heard it, but, you know, they managed to beat Iowa in the second round, and Iowa's a team, they, their defense has been suspect all year, and it really showed in that game. Like, Oregon was just getting whatever they wanted in transition. They look so much more athletic and fast, and uh, that's just how a lot of these Pac-12 teams have looked, uh, and I've been very impressed with what I've seen from them, and, you know, it's very interesting. Bill Walton, I know he's happy. He's proud of that Pac-12 and what he's seen from them, and uh, good for them because Pac-12 has kind of been – I feel like they, they've they gotten made fun of a lot over the years in football and basketball just for not for not being as good. Um, and, you know, it's been it's been a good postseason for them. But those are teams and, the you know, the conference that would stand out the most to me. Yeah, um, and I want to piggyback on your, your Pac-12 comment. Yeah, they've gotten a lot of love throughout this yeah. March Madness run, and as they should, you know, because – the skinny on the Pac-12, whether it's football or basketball, it's not a lot of guys are able to see them throughout the year because they play late at night. And we can't really control that because that's just how, you know, the timing thing is when it comes to time zones and things like that. But, um, you know, I did a bracket as well. I don't, I'm not as in-depth following college basketball like that like you are. But um, mm -hmm. ironically enough, my bracket is destroyed. But technically, all four of my teams I have with a Final Four are still alive. So well, I mean, your Final Four? So I had Gonzaga and Baylor. Obviously, Gonzaga okay. was a trendy pick for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Baylor, I've been hearing about their dominance throughout the Big 12. They had that unfortunate loss against uh -huh. Oklahoma State because Kate Cunningham went crazy. Then I had Bama because I kind of caught them make a little run in the SEC. And when they beat LSU, who quiet as his kept has an underrated basketball program led by Will Wade. Now, he does some very shady things in terms of how he gets players. But when it comes to him coaching, yeah, they're an underrated program. So I had Bama because they were able to shoot the ball very well under Nate Oates. They played defense. He brought that same style that he had in Buffalo to Bama. And it works even more because Bama has – they've always had dynamic guard play. And so that shows, you know, in the tournament 
And then right. I had Houston, who almost lost it all <laughs> when they almost blew it, you know what I'm saying, against Rutgers. And then Rutgers just went cold. And they just went cold down the stretch, which has been very odd throughout this tournament because the skinny in college basketball is when you get down, it's very hard to come back. Um, and they were up late, and then they just couldn't buy a bucket. Houston started getting all of the buckets. And so those are my four teams, and there's a chance it could all come crumbling down because a lot of people don't expect Rutgers, not Rutgers, Houston to beat Syracuse because what Syracuse has had going for them throughout this tournament, and you saw it against West Virginia, they're zone. Now, granted, West Virginia – knew how to play against the zone. They would always pass the ball in the middle of the zone, which is what you're supposed to do. It's just their big men weren't always making the most conscientious decisions. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'd want to pass it, but they take too long to make the pass, so it's easily able to get intercepted. Yeah. Sometimes they'd rush and take a floater, and they would get bricked off the side of the backboard. So, you know, it was just unfortunate. And then when they were on here, were able to get through the zone and get to the lead. Syracuse always had an answer with the shooter. Right. Buddy Bayheim has been unconscious throughout this tournament. Uh, Joe Girard, who was a New York high school basketball legend, he was matching Buddy Bayheim shot for shot with his shooting on display as well. And so they could give Houston problems because it doesn't seem like Houston's very good at shooting the three ball. And to They're beat the zone, you got to be able to shoot the three. And so that's going to be interesting to see as well. But, um, you know, with Oral Roberts, when you're a small school, usually what has to happen during the tournament is you go on an incredible run because you shoot free throws very well and you shoot the three ball very well. Ohio State lost because it couldn't make free throws. I mean, they just, just couldn't make free throws. It was just weird. You know, Dwayne Washington on offense, all that. On offense, all that. You know, Dwayne Washington got a lot of flack for being a total brick maker down the stretch. But, you know, he didn't make clutch free throws down the stretch that he needed to. And so when you go 50% at the line and didn't make four 21 threes, you're not going to win that game. And then right, or right. Roberts, they made 10 threes. And both of the 10 three-pointers came from O'Bannon. And, you know, the guy that has the weird last name that I can't really pronounce, Ambers, that's kind of how it's spelled. They, they couldn't miss. Yeah. They, miss. yeah, they couldn't miss. And, and another thing, like, he leads the league. He leads the country in scoring. Scoring. So it's right. like – you know, he it, it's not much of a surprise that he's doing all this. Like, he's been doing this all year. But, you know, this is the first time people are seeing him and O'Banner play. So, but they've been doing this all year. They've been a really good duo all season for Oral Roberts. And they carried the same energy. It's Florida, which was another yes. weird game because Florida was up. But Oral Roberts always hung around. And then eventually, like Rutgers, they hit a cold spurt. And when yes. they went cold, Oral didn't. And that was the difference. And so basketball whether it's at the college level or the nba level it's a game of runs and it ultimately comes down to who goes on that hot run when it matters and they did as well now my my question with oral roberts is they did play arkansas in the regular season lost them by i think nine or ten so there's familiarity with these two personnels um the thing about arkansas what they've shown is and they showed it against colgate i think that's who they played first and they showed it also against uh texas tech when they want to defend it becomes very hard to score against them. Their guards are very aggressive. They're very That's athletic and they're very active, especially their wings. But they'll always keep you in the game because they play helter skelter offensively. They run up and down. They take a lot of bad three point shots and they don't have knockdown shooters, but they jack it up anyway. And so I think that can keep Oral Roberts around. It's going to be very important, though, when defensively in their backcourt, they get all up on Amos. 
is there going to be other guys in the backcourt that make plays, other guys on the wings that execute off of maybe double teams, all the attention he's going to get. Can they make the wide open jump shots? And then with Gonzaga and Baylor, they're the best two. They're the two best teams in basketball. I mean, they just are. And I, I can't wait to see them in you know the national championship. And so with Gonzaga, um, I think Kenny Smith said it best, maybe, or maybe somebody else said it. Somebody said they play like an NBA team, and they do. They play inside out. Jalen Suggs just he makes their world even easier. Because in the past, when you had Gonzaga teams, they'd have guards that are cool. But a lot of their best players that are NBA talent were in their front court, Rui Hachimura, Adam Morrison, the minus Sabonis. And so they still have that solid front court play, but you have a dynamic guard in Suggs yeah. that can handle the rock just as athletic. He can get to the lane. He can dictate wherever he wants to get to on the floor. It makes their offense even more explosive. And then I think I saw in the recruiting circuit, they got another five-star guard that's going to come to their school next year. So, I think they finally are able to turn the corner as a team with Mark Few in that program. They finally got dynamic all-NBA guard play. They start getting that in that program. They're going to be perennial championship contenders. Oh, yeah, like they're becoming that next Duke, Kentucky, like one of those powerhouse programs. And, you know, I, I really wish, like, we could see them in a different conference, though, like not the WCC. Like the WCC is not as bad as it used to be, but – it's just still not – it's not enough for Gonzaga. Gonzaga makes light work at that conference every year, and I really wish there was, like, a move they could make, whether it's, like, the Pac-12 or maybe even the Big East, like, even though geographically that's not the best, but just something where they're getting tested more because I just feel like we need that with Gonzaga at this point. I agree. Um, I think individuals were like, maybe it hasn't happened yet because they don't have a football program that can coincide with it. Yeah. But I don't think they really matter. I don't know. We'll see. But I agree. And that was the skinny on them. Coming into the year, they were undefeated. Coming into the tournament, they were undefeated. And yeah. everybody was like, they're overrated. They don't play anybody. But I didn't forget that early in the year, they did play people. And they blew them out right. in, in early in yes. preseason tournaments. Yes. Thank you. And so they come into the regular play and Obviously, do light work of Norfolk State, but Oklahoma was playing hard. Like they, they weren't laying down, and it just didn't feel like they were any match. Same thing with uh, Baylor and Wisconsin. Wisconsin was playing hard, but it was clear they're not as athletic as Baylor. And Baylor's another yeah. team. Uh, they give a lot of you know respect and ad ad adulation to their guard play offensively. Those guards can defend. And led by Mitchell, who had, this, who had the same number and the same last name as Donovan Mitchell, he led the charge <laughs> defensively, and it was no match. And so with those two teams, in my opinion, they're going to be in the national championship, and it's going to be interesting to see where they go from there. Um, and so, yeah, and it's – Loyola Chicago is another team I want to touch base on. You know, I haven't followed them at all throughout the season, but they're 27-4, and and they're a mid-major team that's been here before. Their top two players were underclassmen when they were in the Final Four as freshmen last year. And so they play defense. And a lot of people wondered, was that defense going to translate? Because they also play in a conference where it's not full of heavyweight talent. So yeah. when they came into the tournament with, oh, we're a top 10 defensive team, a lot of people were like, are you really? And they just completely guarded Illinois to oblivion. Like completely took that whole team out of their element. And they're going to play an Oregon State team where Oregon State's made a living off of these past few games they won in the tournament, making three-point shots. Mm -hmm. When they get guarded by Loyola Chicago to the fullest extent and run off the three-point line, can they be able to create offense? 
And you kind of saw against Oklahoma State, it was a struggle. Now, their bench came in and did a pretty good job when their starters weren't able to keep that energy. But when Oklahoma State turned up the intensity a little bit and got grimy defensively, it was a struggle. The difference was Oklahoma State couldn't buy a bucket from three down the stretch. They just couldn't. Yeah. So those are the kind of takeaways I've been able to see from the tournament. It's always great to be able to watch March Madness play. We weren't able to have that opportunity last season. And so we're seeing this play out, and a lot of people consider this as the wackiest March Madness tournament ever. And we're no. seeing very good play. So, No, yeah, this is why I'm always like a proponent of playing the games because in college football, I, I get like you you can kind of tell who the four best teams are, like or at least maybe like two to three of the four best teams. There's always like that one wild card, like for that four spot where it's like a debate and you really don't know for sure. Or you 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 might have a feeling, but like it, it's not for sure. It's not certain. Like, you know, this past year we knew Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State were those three best teams. But then, you know, the fourth spot was like a Notre Dame, Texas AM debate. I, I in college football, I would just love to see them expand the playoff and allow for more teams and teams from smaller conferences to get more of an opportunity because you see in college basketball every year, upsets are going to happen. And in college football, well, upsets happen every single year when eight seed take down a one seed every single year. No, not at all. Like, and I get like some people are like, well, we're going to see a lot of blowouts. We're all already seeing blowouts in the college football playoff with the four one, but I just think allowing more access for teams makes it a lot more interesting. And you really give these these lower tier teams. It's not really about the power five. It's about the group of five. And that's the thing about college basketball that just makes it so great. They allow everyone to have an opportunity. And you see teams like Nora Roberts or Loyola Chicago going runs. And Loyola Chicago, like they've been in a mid-major conference, but they're starting to build their program stature because of how they performed in the tournament. And that can get you moved up into a better conference and just get your program more money, all those different things uh, do more for you in recruiting. But in college football, like they don't really allow that. I think that's why some of these mid-major schools in college football, it's, it's a struggle for them to really get better. Because um, you see the teams like the Cincinnati's and the UCS who every year I'm just like, please give these teams a chance. I don't care if they get their butts kicked. Just give them an opportunity. Like they deserve that opportunity at the very, at the bare minimum. They at least deserve a chance. And college basketball does a really good job of that. And I, that's what makes March Madness the best postseason of any sport, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree. And it's possible, like for college football Division One A, for sure to do it because the FCS does it. They have a legit playoff where it's not four teams; it's like twenty plus, and you right. play. And so the the easy thing would be, all right, top twenty five, the AP top twenty five. Or, or, you know what? Make a playoff top 25. If you all make the top 25, you're in a playoff. Give the top eight to 10 teams a bye. Have everybody else play. And then let's go. And, you know, the NCAA is all about making money. So I don't understand why they don't realize, yo, if we expand the playoff, we can make even more money, you know? And so that'll prevent, that'll prevent uh, top players from saying, I'm out for the draft because – you know, these guys know, look, I'm a top tier pick. And I know if, you know, hmm, I don't think my team is going to be a playoff team because if we lose one or yes. two games, we're done. So I'm out of here at like team. midseason. So you expand the playoff, you get more money. Your top players won't jettison to prepare for the draft earlier. And it just opens it up even more because 
you know, I, when, when individuals say small program football schools, they'd get killed. I'm like, dude, I mean, I remember when I was like 11, when TCU went to the Rose Bowl and beat Wisconsin, when Andy yeah. Dolan as their quarterback, like that was yeah. a big deal when that happened. And they were the third best team in all of football. And yeah. who knows if there was a playoff and they were able to play, they could have played their way to the championship. Boise right. State had a run where they'd lose two games in like four years and they'd never taste the natty because they lost to Nevada, you know, and, and, and it's, there's no shame to lose into Nevada when you're in the whack at the time, because Nevada's your rival. Like they build their program to beat you. Like you're the pinnacle of success in that conference. So, you know, it can be done. You can make a a expanded playoff. And I think what's probably going to happen is they're going to get their, bit by bit they're going to expand it to eight teams in five years then the 16 then they'll finally realize maybe at the end of the decade or the next two decades you know what top 25 teams y'all are in the playoff and now you allow multiple teams you'll get the best of both worlds uh teams from a variety of power five conferences can get in and then the smaller schools will have a chance and then we'll just play it out and then who knows um there is no guarantee that Alabama is going to always win the championship. It's not right. because, you know, if you have a playoff cast can get hurt, God forbid they can. And, you know, teams can have a bad day. You, you just never know. And so right. it's unfortunate that that corner hasn't been turned yet by NCAA football. I think it will be once the big wigs up top that control everything. They don't obviously have a connection with playing the full game of football or the love of it realize hmm, we can really make substantial equity off of this. And then that's when it'll be reached. And the so thing, the thing about that though, is like you have a lot of these power five, you know, ADs and commissioners who really don't want that because they don't want to allow access for the group of five schools. They really don't want to give those schools an opportunity. Um, and I, it sucks obviously. And I think they have a lot of power and control over what happens and, and all that. And I think that's what's really limiting or why we really haven't gotten to that point. Um, because like, again, you just see constantly, you'll see in these bowl games, even if these group of five teams don't win, they'll be competitive and they, they give these teams really good games. And I'm like, if you just give these teams an opportunity enough, like some of these teams are going to win. It's just like college basketball. Most of those teams don't win in a tournament. Like, yes, yeah, like, most of them don't, but like, there's always going to be like three or four upsets in that first round where you're just like, wow. And then, you know, then they might win another game. Like, so it's just like giving them an opportunity. Cause I, I hate it for the players because, you know, you're basically like you're what you did this season doesn't matter. And, you know, also like you, some of these teams, will, like the thing I don't like too, is like with the group of five, you, you have the, they'll be like, they have the New Year's six bowl game, but that's only for one team. And, like, last year, for instance, like, you had several teams out of the group of five who I thought deserved to be in good bowl games. It, Cincinnati got the nod, and I thought Cincinnati was definitely the best team out of group of five. But I still thought you had BYU, you had Coastal Carolina, you had Liberty, those type of teams, Louisiana, Lafayette, who should have gotten more of an opportunity or gotten to play in better bowl games. And we continuously just put them in these shitty bowl games and not give them much access to anything else. And I just think that's really unfair to those programs. Um, and I, I, again, I get tired of seeing the Alabamas and the Clemsons every single year. It's like we get those are top programs, but I want their road to be a little tougher. Make them play more games because the more games you play, the more likely you are to stumble in one of those games. 
And you see that in college basketball, like the, the reason the best team doesn't always win is because you have to win six games to get there. And when you're constantly getting everyone's best shot every single night and teams are game planning for you, like it's tough to win every single game or play your best. And you never know, an injury could happen and that could just allow for a road, a path for, you know, an upset or a team that was like a six seed to just go far. So in college football, we definitely need to see that. Um, and like you said, the money, like they love money, you know, and I don't see why we wouldn't make this expand this and make it better. Now, I wouldn't make it 24, like 25. I think because the thing about college football is even though the postseason and all that stuff is a little biased and subjective, and I, I don't really like that because it's not based off uh, direct results. It's just based off of your you're just your opinion. And I don't, I don't like that. Like I get like to a certain extent, opinion applies in every sport. Well, not every sport because college basketball, it, it, it kind of factors in with the seeding, but like in the NBA and NFL, there's no opinion that matters. It's just like based off your results. So like you play all the games, no, no one's personal opinion will affect who gets where. And um, that's the thing about college football that just really frustrates me. But if you if you expand it too much, you'll devalue a little bit of the regular season. And I don't want that because I, I do like how it feels like every game is so important in college football. Like if you stumble once, like that could be your chances at the playoff. Like they could be done. So I, I, I like that because it makes every game like it makes every team like show like they have to play their best every single game to be able to get to where they want. Unless you're in a power five where it don't seem to matter as much. Like you can stumble up once and still have a chance if you are able to win out, but it's still, even if you lose once, your chances are a lot less likely if, as if you would go undefeated. Cause if you're an undefeated power five champ, you're in, uh, if you lose one game, you're not for sure in, but if you're in the sec and you lose one game, you're most likely going to get in. If you're in a big 10, you lose one game, you're most likely going to get in. But with college basketball, like you see, like, even though the tournament's so great, a lot of people don't pay attention to the regular season. And that's the issue. That's the one issue with having so many teams. But I think in college football, if you brought it to eight, I think you could still manage to have like a good regular season product where every game matters, but then also have a great postseason where you allow more access to teams. Yeah, two points I want to touch base on before we pivot. Uh, yeah, the pandemic made the realization that the college football playoff is pretty bad. Um, Texas A&M had probably the most successful year in a while. Um, it was under Jimbo Fisher. When he took the job, a lot of people looked at it as a death sentence because it's like, yeah, Jimbo, you did your thing in Florida State, but it's A&M, you're in the SEC West. You, you're not going to get past Saban. You might not even get past LSU. So was it worth it? They went 8-1 last year. And they were livid, led by Kellen Mond, when they didn't have an opportunity to get into the playoff. I think Ohio State got in and they played less games. And so the realization is four just isn't realistic. I, you're right. Maybe 25 is excessive. I think eight kind of isn't enough. I think 10. Like everybody, when we make these lists, we always do, no matter what it is, we show top 10 players, top 10 things, top 10, top 10 just sounds right. So do top 10. And just live with the results from there. And so you're right. When you in college sports, it's all based upon opinion, AP polls, rankings, mm -hmm. awards. It's, it's off of what do I rock with, what, what resonates with me. And so 
playoff wise, if you expand it to 10, I just feel like it's the most realistic number to get to. And then you just play it out from there. And then the biggest thing you talked about is when you narrow the playing field in a playoff and, and postseason play at the collegiate level, it all boils down to honestly, who's the most talented team. But if you expand it, like you do in college basketball, it comes down to coaching. Kentucky always, with the exception of this year, always brings in the best recruiting class in basketball. Mm-hmm. And they had a tough year this year, obviously because of the pandemic. But even yeah. despite this year, Calipari's won one championship, and that was with Anthony Davis, who arguably was the best college basketball player in a while. He's always had talented teams, but his inability to draw it up when it matters as a coach from an X's and O's standpoint prevents them from winning because in a sudden death postseason tournament, it's not about the best players all the time. It's about best matchups and how you execute and adjust throughout a game as it goes on. Because, you know, that pressure cooker moment as a head coach in a sudden death situation, it changes a lot of guys. And so, you know, when you down eight in the second round and you feel that pressure of your fan base and your AD, man, if I lose and we get out here quick, it's not going to look good on me. You may pull back in terms of making the requisite decisions throughout a game. And so, that's what college basketball allows. It allows the best coach teams and the well-executed game plans to come out on top and resonate more than just, I'll put out the best five players because I recruit well. You know, you right. don't get that opportunity in college football because then your conference, you win 12 games, and you may go against a team that recruits just as well as you are, but because you got one of the two dominant receiving cores in all the football like Alabama had last year, you're good. You're just going to win because you're going to dust everybody. So, that's just the reality of college football, and it's unfortunate. Right. And, like, again, like, this is why, like, like when you have that four or five debate, like, that's when the, 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 the eight to ten team playoff just, like, that's why you want it the most because, like, you'll be able to really settle who's the better team or maybe not who's the better team, but, like, who really deserves to get that spot because they'll actually play on the field instead of you just being like, well, this team's better because I think so. Um, you know, I, I just don't like that. And again, like with conferences, there were no non-conference games this past year. So it was like really hard. We all figured the SEC was the best like every year, but like with the other conferences, like you really just didn't know, like there wasn't a lot of out of conference play or inner conference play and all that. So you just kind of just had to go based off the eye test and, you know, People like to say the preseason doesn't matter, but it does kind of like the preseason rankings do kind of affect how people look at teams uh, later in the year because those preseason rankings, they start with that and then those rankings get used like uh, to, to like move teams up and down. Because say a team starts nine, at 19 in the preseason poll and then they start 3-0, and oh, well, they're going to be at 11 because teams are going to lose or something. They're going to move up just because teams are losing and they kept winning. But are they are they really that, you know, good of a team? They, they might have started with an easy schedule and we just had them ranked because we think they're a good team. But, you know, th- this is why I don't like preseason polls and stuff like that. And it just directly affects the playoff and how you look at certain teams and how you look at certain teams' resumes and stuff like that. And then, you know, that that's what deciphers who gets in the playoff. And um, I just think college football needs to figure those things out because college basketball does such such a good job of that. Um, and I think that's what, that's going to make the fandom of it. Uh, I think grow a lot more. For sure. And we headed to the last topic, NBA 
trade deadline is final. Um, you had a lot of teams do some things that are like, oh, okay, they're making pushes. And you had a lot of teams do nothing. And you're like, okay, they're just going to stay pat. Well, good luck to that. We don't know. And so let's start with the winners um, in NBA trade deadline. In my mind, I'm about to say free agency, but the trade deadline. Uh, you saw teams like Miami, Chicago, Boston, even Orlando in their own way, make moves to set course on what they're trying to get at in the present and for the future. And so they don't have to be those teams, but which team do you feel like won at the trade deadline in terms of getting what they needed and maybe building something moving forward to get to the Larry OB? Well, me, it's Chicago just because you got probably the best player out of any of the players that got traded yesterday, Nikola Vucevic. He's been amazing in Orlando this year. I think he's averaging like 25 and 11 on really good efficiency. The team's bad, but he's been phenomenal. And I just think like for Chicago, like you see that Zach Levine's starting to elevate into that superstar level, like, you know, like just with his insane play. And they've been, you know, a French playoff team this year. Like they're, they're at least in that play-in tournament mix. And I just think it was really important for them to try to make a move to try to kind of like be certain that they make the playoffs. And I think bringing in Vucevic could do that. And you really didn't give up anything that I'm like, oh, why would you give that up? You gave up Wendell Carter, who is a nice player, but he's not going to be anything more than like a rotational player for you. He could maybe be a starter on some teams, but he, you know, he's not going to be change your life or anything. Auto Porter's overpaid and just really didn't perform well for Chicago. And you get two first round, you give up two first round picks. But if you're the Bulls, at some point, like you haven't drafted that well anyway. And you just need to try to upgrade this roster to keep Zach Levine happy and try to make a push at doing something more because you've been trying to rebuild and it really hasn't gone anywhere. But you did get Zach Levine and he's kind of, you know, single handedly elevated this team to being competitive. And you have a new front office who no, actually knows what they're doing and is competent. So I think bringing in Vooch uh, gives you a nice pairing, a nice duo with him and Levine. And, you know, now you have Bulls fans could be more excited. Uh, in free agency, you might have more guys that are actually interested in coming to Chicago. So I think this type of move is just the type of thing that if you're really trying to take that next step as a franchise, this is what you needed to do. And I love this. I, I was shocked by it because I, I didn't think he was going to get traded at all. And if he were to get traded, I thought a team like Boston would have been a good destination. But Chicago really came out of the, the blue. And when I saw it, I was like, that's a really good move. So Chicago would definitely be my winner. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Uh, no, the trade deadline was kind of weird this year because I don't know if it was last year or maybe two years ago. Probably it was the year before. AD came to the Lakers where nothing happened during the trade deadline and everybody was <laughs> furious because <laughs> they were like, man, everybody's talking, something's going to pop and nothing right. did. Everything happened, but I felt like the Vucevic domino was probably going to be the most impactful one out of everything right. that happened. And it did for Chicago. They also got Daniel Tice as well from Boston. You know, yeah. when Chicago came into the season and got Billy Donovan, that move acknowledged to me that they're trying to make a playoff push. Billy Donovan, mm -hmm. I get it. At Oklahoma City, horrible when it comes to drawing up X's and those in game yes. when stuff happens. But in terms of building a competitive postseason perennial program, he did it pretty well in college with Florida with vets. He's done it pretty well with Oklahoma City. 
in a variety of ways. When KD was there his last year, leading that team to a conference final as a first-year coach was impressive. And when Paul George came into the fold, that version of OKC, impressive. And then especially what he did with Chris Paul, SGA, and Schroeder, they were a postseason team that probably should have been impressive. So when he came to Chicago, they got him to bring the team back into postseason relevancy. And with Vucevic, that's what you get. Because when I've seen Chicago play, they're set in the backcourt. I didn't get why they wanted Lonzo unless they wanted Lonzo. So Lonzo's job could be to get the ball in the hands of Levine and Vucevic. Because Kobe White isn't a traditional point guard. He's a score-first combo guy. And maybe they're not resonating to that fully because they want to maximize the fullest ability of a shooting guard in Levine. But their backcourt is fine. Kobe White's a bucket. He's an inconsistent yes. bucket, but he's yes. a bucket. Um, Levine's a bucket as well. That front court, though, has always been hit or miss. Thaddeus Young is probably their best front court player, and he's an aging veteran. Wendell Carter just never panned out. He's a nice guy. He's a very intellectual guy. He means well, but you're right. I think he's just a rotational player at this level in the pros. You get a guy in Vucevic, he's 25 and 11. And likewise, I didn't think he'd move because Orlando, for a couple of weeks, were talking like, you know what? We're going to keep our team intact because we feel like due to injuries, we didn't maximize our fullest potential. And while that is technically true, it's also cap. It's a half truth. The reality <laughs> is if Markel Fultz doesn't get hurt, they're a playoff team. Facts. Because when he played at the point guard position, it was just a whole different feel for sure. The issue is you were going to probably be a seven seed, though, and you weren't going to beat Brooklyn. You're not going to beat Philly and you're probably not going to beat. Miami, even though they were squandering at the time. So just blow it up. And they did. And so Orlando, kudos to them. They got back in that transaction. Um, a first round pick, I might add. Um, they yeah. also made a deal where Aaron Gordon got sent to Denver. That's another team. I before it even happened, I was like, Aaron Gordon would be a perfect fit for Denver because Denver mm-hmm. was missing something at the fourth spot. They brought back Millsap, but his days are numbered. He's a vet, he's aged, he's not gonna give you that Paul Millsap. Atlanta, Utah tight numbers. They needed a guy. He didn't have to get 20 and 10, but he had to get 15 and 10. And he didn't, Gordon didn't demand a ton on the trade market because he's been a bust throughout his early year in the league. You know, when he came out of Arizona, everybody thought he could be the next Blake Griffin. He was a four that was supremely athletic. Um, didn't have the post move repertoire that Blake had coming out of when he was in Oklahoma, but they had the same prototype same measurable, same upside. And he, he's come along as a three-point shooter, but he was never that guy who utilized his orchard athleticism to dominate a game like Blake did early in his career with the Clippers. And so it never panned out in Orlando. But in Denver, he's not going to expect to be that guy. He's going to be probably the third option. And we're, fourth, honestly. Fourth, MPJ. honestly. Right, Michael Porter Jr. But I say third because Malone does not like MPJ. But, yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, Jokic's ability to pass out of the post and in the post is going to open up Gordon's life immensely. He's going to get a lot of easy lob opportunities, backdoor cuts, wide open threes. He's not going to have to work as hard for a shot like he had to in Orlando. And I think that's going to open up the game so much for him and maximize his impact and ability on Denver. So I love that move for them. And as we segue to the losers, I'm going to say my loser thing. I don't know what the Boston Celtics are doing. Um, You know, coming into the year, the issue was what? They don't have size. You know, they let Al Horford go. They never replaced Al Horford. They never played Robert Williams. Now, it looks like they're going to finally play Robert Williams because 
He is literally the tallest dude on their squad in the front court. Yeah. Um, their backup center is Tristan Thompson, which might have sounded pretty good four years ago when he was with Cleveland and LeBron and Kyrie and Love were there. Doesn't sound good now. Yeah. I don't they did they did bring in Mo Wagner because um, you know, they traded Daniel Tice for him. And just from watching the Wizards a lot, he he gives good effort. Um, and he can shoot the three a little, but he's just really bad on defense and doesn't provide much rebounding. So I don't know how much he would help them either. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like they got two different players. They got Williams is the defensive athletic freak at the rim. Yeah. Longer's great as a stretch five, but he doesn't bring any type of rim protection. And yeah. then they got Evan Fournay, who statistically does seem like, you know, just looking at it from an eye test perspective. Man, he had a career year with Orlando. I've seen Fournier play a lot because Orlando was in the playoffs a lot the past two years. He's not that good. You know, he's like a poor man's, a very poor man's Gordon Hayward, which is what they're trying to replace. The issue yeah. is I, they don't need another a guard that can score. <laughs> they need a big. And it doesn't even have to be a big that is an offensive threat. It just has to be a big that can give you something in terms of consistent minutes where they're in the front court and they're protecting the rim, they're being some type of a factor offensively, something. And the rumor is Danny Ainge made an effort to get Nikola Vucevic. But honestly, man, if Orlando just wanted, I get it. If Orlando wanted either Brown or Tatum, I understand. But something tells me that's probably not what they wanted. Yeah, the they, deals that they, they made with, yeah, the deals that they made with Denver where it was like, here, take Gordon, and we'll just take Gary Harris and the first-round pick. That will probably be super low. Orlando they literally got Fournier for just two seconds. Like, like so they could have gotten Vooch for a good price. Like, I the on the Fournier move, though, I think the reason I don't think it's a bad move is because, like, they, they've lacked depth, depth, too. Like, they just – they really need guys that can come off the bench and provide something for them. So I like the Fournier move for that reason. Like I do think he could give them some good production off the bench. And considering they only gave up two seconds, I'm just like, it's really you really didn't lose anything for you kind of got them for free. So I guess, but the fact that they have not addressed a big, maybe they're going in on Andre Drummond, but I think Andre Drummond's really overrated. Uh I, I don't really think he's gonna change their life. Yeah, he can rebound, but is he gonna help you much on defense? I really don't know. Um, and he just offensively, he's just really he doesn't finish at the rim at a good rate. Um, I feel like he he's a guy that could just really hurt their offense because in Cleveland, he definitely hurt their offense. Um, and I really don't see any other bigs that on, on the open market that can really change their life. So I just think they're kind of stuck at this point in Boston with this roster. They are. Um, and it is very unfortunate. Like you said, maybe they are holding out hope on Drummond. Maybe yeah. they're holding out hope on Aldridge, but it sounds like Aldridge's going to be a heat, and it sounds like Drummond's probably going to be in L.A. So you're not going to get those two guys, and you're stuck. And it just felt like if you weren't going to resolve the big situation, just keep the guys you have. I think they finally realized from a rotational perspective, because I've, hear, I've heard the national media finally talk about it after two years, play Robert Williams more. And I feel like the reason why they didn't play Robert Williams a lot because from a discipline perspective, he's not – he always is in foul trouble. And then it felt like for a while he wasn't conditioned. So, you know, maybe in large part because of his – and when I'm talking about his, Robert Williams' 
professional uh, aptitude to the game. Maybe that's why they held him out, but they're finally playing given he's making an impact. And so if you look around the market and realize there's no realistic chance we're going to get Aldridge or Drummond, keep the bigs that you have. Don't let Tice go. As for the Fournier signing, I get it. They get Fournier for a depth perspective at the guard spot. But the ironic thing is that no one is talking about and just flubbed in the draft. They've taken a lot of guards the past few years yeah. where they wouldn't have had to make such a move with Fournier, even though it was for free, if they hit in the draft at the guard spot. They got Romeo Langford, who flamed out at Indiana, but went high just, in my opinion, based upon his high, high school ranking. I like Carson Edwards a lot. And when he has played, he's been cool. They just don't like him. And it's another – they like Prayton Pitcher, who has given them substantial yeah. minutes, and he's played particularly right. well. But I, obviously they don't like him enough because they went out of their way to get Fournier. And so my scheme yeah. with Fournier is when he's just, off, he's off. And he doesn't provide any other playmaking ability outside of being a shot true. maker. So now you have – and they're going to play these guys on the floor. You're going to have four guys on the floor that need the ball in their hands to be productive. Jason Tatum, I love him. He's a future superstar. He's not a knockdown shooter to where you can just spot him up and he can hit a corner shot. Same thing with uh, Jalen Brown. He's streaky. Um, yeah. Kimball Walker is a great offensive scorer who's finally starting to come into his own this season because I think he's finally starting to recover from the injuries. But – He's not as effective with the ball and if the ball's not in his hands either. So it's just going to be a hogwash offensively. And you can honestly say in the East, Philadelphia's been consistent. Brooklyn looks like a juggernaut. And Miami finally with the pieces that they're adding to to the deadline, they're going to be even better. This is going to be the year where Boston's finally going to regress and where when we head into the offseason, everybody's going to be under the, in, on the hot seat. Um, with well, exception of maybe... Yeah, except Tatum. And yeah, Brown. what he said, Tatum and Tatum and Brown, because Tatum and Brown had to come out this year, in my opinion, and prove we're foundational pieces within the team, and they did. Brown took an all star lead. Yeah, yeah, and Tatum is in essence stayed the same. Um, so they're fine, but Ainge hot seat, uh, and Brad Stevens hot seat as well because it just looks like he's not resonating with these guys anymore, and right. Ainge hasn't did him any services because he's built a team that has a whole bunch of guys that do the same thing. And so basketball is all about definite roles. You know, when Brooklyn got Harden, it did look like on paper to a lot of people, wow, all three of those dudes need the ball to be successful to score. But what nobody took into account is Harden, when he came into the league, made his money off of being a playmaking point with Oklahoma City. Actually, in his one year with Houston, where D'Antoni was like, you know what, you're going to be the point guard. This was the year before Paul came. Harden led the league in assists. So he has a track record of being able to be a playmaker and be unselfish to make others better, which is why I knew it was going to work. And sure enough, they put Harden at the point, let Kyrie go off as a scorer, and then KD could do a little bit of everything. So he can kind of be your, your, in essence, your Scottie Pippen to a degree, but he's a Scottie Pippen that can shoot and score. And so with Boston, just because you got four guys on the floor that can get 20, doesn't mean they're going to all coincide with each other perfectly because no one on there. Yeah. Also, they aren't the talents of the Brooklyn big three. Like the thing is, it's like some guys you could just put together and you know, it's just going to work because yeah, fit is always a question, but like when they're just as so talented, like these three guys are like, 
Kyrie, KD, and Harden don't have any weaknesses in their offensive game. A lot of times when things don't fit well, it's because certain guys have a weakness in their game that kind of affects, like, or kind of makes the thing not gel right. And with these three guys, there's just no weakness. Like, all of them can shoot well, pass well, you know, get to the rim. Like, there just isn't anything that they don't do well in offense. So this is – in Boston, it's not the same. Like, like you said, Tatum and Brown are very streaky. Kimba this year, he's been uh, better since he's come back from injury, but he still hasn't been the Kimba Walker that, you know, we saw in Charlotte or even the Kimba Walker we saw last season. He just he just looks like he's been a little off this year, and I don't know like he's I don't know how many times he's shot over fifty percent in a game this year. It's it's been very few. So with this team, like that that's another thing. Like when you just put guys together, you have to look at the like how just the talent level, and if there's any weaknesses in their game that could really affect how the guys work together. And before we wrap this up, I want to touch base on about four teams. The L.A. teams. So the Lakers didn't make any moves. Um, it sounded like they were really interested in Kyle Lowry, who, when I found out that was a legit thing, said Kyle Lowry would be perfect for that team. Because, you know, look, I like Dennis Schroeder, but as a point guard, your ability to coincide with LeBron's ability as a player, because the offense is going to run through him, is very important. And I feel yeah. like Lowry is a more seamless fit as a league or opposite of LeBron and Schroeder, because Better three-point shooter, spot-up-wise. Lowry can hit a spot-up jumper. Uh, a, def- a relentless defender. He can run the second unit offense as a point guard. And he's unselfish. <laughs> like, like, he's unselfish. And so, if you could find a way to get that done and the deciding factor was Taylor, Horton, Tucker, and you didn't want to get rid of him, because in your eyes, you're like, he's upside. Let's be honest. Once LeBron is gone... They're done. Like, the Lakers aren't going to be a perennial playoff contender. They're just not, because I love Anthony Davis as a player, but we're seeing this season, health is always an issue. He survived last year in terms of not getting nicked up as bad, but this year hasn't been the case. And so you have to focus on, for the next two years, winning the Larry O'Brien trophy. Kyle Lowry could have been that, I'm not going to say that deciding factor, but he could have made that team a lot better, because eventually LeBron's going to come back. And AD is going to come back. Are they going to be 100%? No, which means you kind of need that third wheel that can do everything and be as versatile as possible to maximize their window because I'm hearing they would have lost depth in their bench. Their bench has been hit or miss throughout the year. Wesley Matthews tried to tell people he's washed, and everyone's seeing that. Marcus Saul <laughs> tried to tell people he's washed. Everyone's seeing that. And I like what Montrez Harold is bringing to the table. He's doing the same thing he did at LA. The problem is AD's not in the rotation because he's hurt. Marcus right. Saul is in the rotation and is ineffective. So they're having to go play small because those are the only two bigs right. that they have. Harold's your five, and he's just not big enough. You know, right. it's, it's, the heart's in the right place, but he's not big enough. And so they basically stayed pat as a team. And I honestly feel like even before AD and LeBron got hurt, I just felt it was going to be really hard for them to repeat especially when Brooklyn got their big three together. Now, granted, KD's health is a question, so we'll see where that goes for the Nets. But it's going to be hard, and especially with the Clippers, all the Clippers needed was a point guard. They got Rondo. And I know a lot of people are looking at Rondo as, who oh, Rondo's averaging four points a game, and he didn't work out with Atlanta. Yeah, because Atlanta really didn't need him. Bro. Like, like, they didn't. They got him also, on some... 
Rondo has hope. a track record of not performing very well in the regular season, like, you know, and, and turning it on in the playoffs. He's called playoff Rondo for a reason. So you really, when you trade for him, you're trading for his, him in the postseason, not really the regular season. And that's fact, you are. And so it didn't work out with Atlanta because, you know, Rondo was coming off the bench and maybe he didn't gravitate like a lot of the team in Atlanta didn't to – uh, their former head coach, Lloyd Pierce, it just looked like the whole team checked out. So now he's under a familiar guy in Ty Lue, who was the assistant coach with Boston when Ronda was a young player. And he's the leadership linchpin playmaking league guard that they've needed. The Clippers have fell off recently, but have kind of gotten their stuff together because, you know, they're having to rely on Leonard and Paul George to run the offense. Kawhi Leonard isn't that great of a playmaker. And Paul George isn't that great of a playmaker either. You needed a lead guard that can make their jobs a lot easier as the game wears on. And Rondo is going to provide that in the postseason. In my opinion, that Rondo move took them to the next level as a Clipper franchise. They're going to be a legit contender for sure. And, you know, Miami, what they did, they got all the depot back into the fold. Uh, the rumor trade that we all expected to possibly happen, it finally did. They make it Aldridge as well. I'm interested to see how him and Butler play alongside each other because they're in essence they're the same player now granted Butler's the more older healthier version of Oladipo and as a better defender but you have a potential backcourt late in games of guys that could hit jump shots but they're not the most proficient shooters you're going to get hard-nosed lunch pill versus the guys they're going to defend but is it enough though to be Brooklyn I don't think so because Brooklyn oh, definitely not. is firepower that you're not going to contain so you're going to have to outgun. And I don't think they have the personnel to outgun it. And with Toronto, they didn't get rid of Kyle Lowry. But what they've admitted, Masai Ujiri, <laughs> with this transaction is, as they traded Norman Powell to the Portland Trailblazers, they're not going to rebuild. They're just going to reform. But their championship window obviously closed when Kawhi left. But yeah. realistically, their window was two years. You know, when they won the ring, and then the next year, their whole determination was we're going to get to the finals to show people, yo, we can win the East without Kawhi. They weren't able to because Siakam sucks <laughs> in the second round. And he's been pretty inefficient this year, which is causing him to kind of have a fallout with his coach, Nick Nurse. And so the way the contracts have aligned with them, they're going to build around Siakam and Van Vliet and OG Ananobi. They basically chose yeah. to pay Ananobi, in my opinion, over Powell, which is why they traded Powell. They got younger assets as well. They could, if they want to, re-sign Lowry to two years and have him retire as a Raptor. I don't expect that. And so with Toronto, while they probably won't make the playoffs this season, they'll be back in the next two to three years, but their championship window is officially closed. And what Ujiri has shown with this team and is what he's going to have to bank on, because I think the year after next, the free agency class is supposed to be crazy. They just need a friend. They just need a superstar player for them to be a championship contender. They have solid consulary parts. They have a head coach that's a versatile play caller that will try anything and do whatever to make a winning possible. They just need that game-changing player to take them over the top because they're a source of lunch pill guys maxed out to a second-round exit in the bubble last season. No, yeah, I agree. With the Powell thing, though, like, I want to look at Portland. I really love that pickup for them because that's just another guy that can just get you a bucket. Like, And in the playoffs, it's just, it just comes down to how many guys can get you a bucket when needed. 
because we know Dame can, obviously. We're seeing CJ just break out mellow. Um, and now you add Powell to that mix. Like, this team is loaded. They have so many options. And he's a guy that when, when Dame draws a lot of attention, he's going to get so many good looks, and he's going to be able to knock him down for this team. Gary Trent, I really like him. I like how hard he plays. And, uh, you know, he can hit a 3-2 and, and, you know, make plays by himself. But I just feel like Powell's definitely an upgrade for them. Uh, and Rodney Hood, you know, he wasn't playing that much for them anyway. He he wasn't giving them that much. So I don't feel like that's really a, any bit of a loss. Portland would definitely be in our team. I'd consider a winner after this deadline just because I really am high on Powell. You know, he's had a tremendous year. And uh, I'm surprised Toronto didn't get more for him, to be honest. I feel like they could have maybe got a first potentially from someone. But, you know, I guess, you know, it is what it is. Maybe, or maybe maybe they couldn't. I don't know. But uh, I, I like that move for Portland a lot. I think that improves them. And when they're fully healthy, Portland's a dangerous team come playoff time because they they're loaded. Yeah, Powell played so well really this season. Um, and it really kind of started off last year before the pandemic hit. And it did feel like because of his rising play that maybe somebody would take the plunge and be like, let's offer a first. It hasn't happened. And I do feel like from a Portland standpoint, he is an upgrade over Trent because more versatile putting the ball on the floor as a scorer. Gary right. Trent is a very streaky but solid shooter, but you can kind of tell he's still trying to develop that off-the-bounce game offensively. And so with Powell, same thing with Powell as well. When he was coming in, he was a traditional direct-line slasher, but now he's at a crossover. He's got a wiggle to his game off the bounce, and so that's what is going to be there for Portland. My only problem with the Trailblazers is the talent is there. It's just schematically as a team they play they your turn my they play your turn my turn basketball yeah, yeah. and the team that they remind me of a lot they're just a lesser talented version of is oklahoma city they did the same thing when they had westbrook and durant your turn my turn the difference between those guys and these guys are westbrook was an all-world athlete and durant was literally a top five player so they could play like that and get to the conference finals when they were healthy Portland can't play like that and get out of the first round consistently unless they luck up and play a team like Oklahoma City, who lost their identity in that series. And I think they played, I'm not sure. Oh, they played a Clipper team that they beat in the first round. This was a while back because I think Blake Griffin broke his thumb. So yeah. like if, if they're not playing a team that's young or lost their identity along the way or somebody's hurt and they're playing a team that knows who they are, uh, they stick to what they do, and they're a lot more variant as a team. They struggle, and so they play a lot of ISO basketball, and it's unfortunate because Nurkic can be a 15-10 and 10 guy because he's got a post game. You know, yeah. Carmelo Anthony, even though he's on his last leg, he could be a little bit more involved as well. Derrick Jones Jr. is an athlete that is starting to get a three-point shot, but he could be incorporated within the system too. And so my thing with Norman Powell is they got him, and that's cool, but if he's on the floor with Lillard and McCollum, will he truly be maximized? Also, Trent Jr. would have been easier to resign because he's restricted. He's a restricted free agent. Powell is unrestricted. So they got him for sure, which does mean, right, that, oh, yeah, they're going to bring him back. But Indiana started leaking. And we're going to see if it's true come free agency time in the summer that they're going to overpay for Norman Powell. I do not think Norman Powell is a $100 million player, but – teams that aren't good yeah. Yeah. to do that 
Yeah, it'd just be like, look, Pop, we're going to pay you a max dollar and you're going to start. And he's gone, which means now Portland doesn't have a backup shooting guard, which is important because Gary Trent Jr. came and he gave you reliable minutes because McCollum has showcased the past few years. He gets hurt. Lillard doesn't get hurt, but yeah. McCollum does. So it's important to have that backup shooting guard spot on lock because you're going to need a guy to, to substantially spell McCollum if he's in foul trouble or if he's out with injury. Agreed. Yeah. Totally agree. So with that, that would be the end of a long episode 11 of Independent yes. Intel. Um, it was I know great I being, a little bit. Yeah, it was great being with Will. Um, he's a great person to talk to about basketball, football, variety of sports. And, uh, you know, before I sign off, you know, talk about your product one more time and what you enjoy about the podcast. Uh, All I would say, well, first, let me talk about the podcast. Yeah, this was a great discussion. Um, You know, thanks for having me on. Uh, I definitely rambled a little bit, so I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know, this was fun. It's always cool to be able to talk in depth about sports with other people. Uh, and, you know, this is my first podcast. I don't I do not do podcast. Like, I've always been kind of nervous to do these things because I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just I always forget something I want to say. But, you know, I, I think uh, this has been pretty good for me. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to the Instagram page, yeah, just uh, – if you're watching this, just please uh, try to check out my page if you like it or not. You know, I post everything and uh, I try to post, you know, news reports, uh, scores, you know, original content, highlights, everything. So just uh, check it out. I'm sure you'll like it. For sure. And um, I'll send you a clip, of course, of this this podcast. You'll be the first one to get it before I put it on Spotify and Apple right. Pod. And with that, I'm going to sign out. Be back with you guys next week for episode 12, potentially with a new guest, potentially solo. You guys have a great day. Peace out.